Hey ladies, thanks for joining me today on the MABC Women's Bible Study Podcast. I have to admit, this feels a bit odd, teaching to a cell phone. On the plus side though, it's the most well-behaved audience I've ever had. For those of you who don't know me, most of my teaching experience has been with kids. As the children's ministry director, I'm more used to teaching little ones and navigating the dynamics of wiggly bums and short attention spans. If we were in person, you know I would have included a song or a game. It's just how I'm wired. Alas, here I am, out of my comfort zone, but very grateful to have this opportunity. This week, we'll, we will be studying Matthew 6, a continuation of the renowned Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' first recorded teaching in the New Testament. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus inaugurates the kingdom and teaches how to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. He establishes his authority as king and points his followers to true righteousness. In Matthew 6, Jesus continues to teach on the upside-down kingdom, addressing hot topics such as prayer, money, anxiety, and hypocrisy. Real easy stuff, right? <laughs> Ladies, this chapter is so jam-packed. Many teachers split this up into five or more sermons, but we will have the joy of covering it all in a 40-minute period. My prayer is that this chapter would help us realign our priorities to kingdom priorities. I hope that like a good old chiropractic alignment, you will leave feeling refreshed, but a little uncomfortable. I'm excited to dig into the chap in this chapter with you. Let's get started. I love the Olympics. I look forward to watching the competition every two years. I'm constantly astounded by the incredible talent and skill. But there's a reason the Olympians inspire awe, isn't there? They don't just get to be that good overnight. An Olympian's whole life revolves around getting to the Olympics. It determines how they spend their time, what they eat, when they eat, how much they eat. You remember Michael Phelps, the eight-time gold medalist? He ate 12,000 calories a day. Olympians constantly seek the next best piece of equipment or apparel, anything to get a competitive edge. They are willing to move to a different country to train. They pursue the best coaches. They create step-by-step -step plans. There is no time to waste. Every minute counts. They eat, sleep, breathe their sport. They do it all for a chance for a future reward, to win a medal. Their, their heart's desire and pursuit is to go to the Olympics, and they orient their whole lives around this aim. In today's passage, we will see Jesus charging his disciples to have that same undivided devotion, and single-minded focus on the kingdom. He is calling us to reorient our lives around the living God and his kingdom priorities. In order to do this, we need to examine our hearts and see where our allegiance lies. Well-known author Paul Tripp said it well, God designed us to be value-oriented, purpose-motivated beings. God gave us this capacity because he designed us for worship. So what you do and say in your life is always done in pursuit of some kind of treasure. What do your words and actions reveal about what's truly important to you? Yes, we are talking about the motives of our heart. I know that this is deep and we might not want to go there, but God's word is a mirror. It will help us see ourselves rightly. We will explore the following questions in our lesson today. Do you treasure the king or is your loyalty divided? Are you living as if this life is all there is? Or are you living your life for the eternal kingdom of God? As it says at the end of Matthew 6 and verse 33, 
do we seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness above all else? Or do we seek the kingdom of self and the world? I've broken this chapter into two large sections. The first section is verse 1 to 18, where Jesus addresses the heart motives behind religious activity. And Jesus warns against doing good deeds to be seen by others. Kingdom citizens are to seek God over man. The second section is verse 19 to 34, where Jesus warns against laying up treasure here on earth and the greed and anxiety it causes. Again, put simply, kingdom citizens are to seek God over possessions. Are you ready, ladies? Okay, make sure you have your Bible. Let's dig in. Let's look at verses 1 to 18. Here, Jesus addresses the heart motives behind religious activity. Right out of the gate, Jesus calls it as it is. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness to be seen by others. The warning would cut against the grain of the culture where flaunting and grandiose expression of piety were prevalent. He uses the examples of giving, praying, and fasting. He knows our natural disposition to do good in order to be praised by others. He is combating the sin of pride and calling his disciples to check their motives. I want to draw your attention to the repetitive pattern in this section. Each example follows the structure. Don't be like the hypocrites. They have received their reward. Instead, perform righteous acts in secret, and your Father will reward you. All right, look with me at verse 2 to 4. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who is in secret, who sees in secret, will reward you. Jesus is warning against a wrong kind of giving, which draws attention to oneself to receive praise. We are not to flaunt it like the hypocrites. This is the first time the word hypocrite appears in the Gospel of Matthew, and it most certainly won't be the last. A hypocrite refers to an actor, a performer. Who do you think the hypocrites are referring to? It's the Pharisees and scribes. But let's not point the finger too soon. Hypocrite is a broad category, and it would be best to put ourselves in the place of hypocrite to see if we have any performance issues of our own. We see here that the hypocrites have received the reward, their reward is man's applause, and that's all. In the moment, it can seem like that reward is worth it, but because it is tangible and immediate, we all love it. We all love praise, don't we? We all love to hear, that's great, you're awesome. You are such a hard worker. You are so generous. It is like a drug to our hearts, but it is fleeting. If we give to be praised by others, it's not true obedience. God sees right through our charades. Hebrews 4.13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And the Psalms 139 verses 7 to 8 says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I, shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. God is all-knowing and sees the heart. His omnipresence is both a corrective and a comfort. In contrast to the hypocrites, kingdom citizens are to give in secret for the glory of God, not their own. 
so much so that their left hand doesn't even realize the right hand is giving. It's quite brilliant, really. It's hard to be praised by others when no one sees you. Disciples must be content with being noticed by the Father, realizing temporary human approval is insignificant in the light of eternity. When we give out of an overflow of love for God and others, we will receive God's reward. This is a future reward. It's when God tells us at the end, well done, good and faithful servant. When we seek the praise of man, we forego God's divine presence now and future benediction. We say, I would rather have friends think I'm awesome than receive praise from God later. That's a bad trade. A citizen of the kingdom gives and serves to please God, not for the fleeting approval of man. Our lives should be characterized by generosity and humble acts of righteousness. When you give, are you giving? Are you doing it begrudgingly for fear of what someone will think? Or are you giving from a generous heart, eager to reflect God's generosity to the world? All right, let's read the following verses, verses five to eight. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. There they are again. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask. The first issue is between public and private prayer. Jesus is speaking to the Jewish custom of praying out loud morning, afternoon, and evening. These hypocrites would engage in flashy prayer in public places. They'd stop at strategic places to be seen and pray for all to hear, just like the Pharisee prayed in Luke 18, 11 to 12. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like the tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. These hypocrites prayed not to be heard by God, but to be heard by men. This is a common fault in public prayer today. When people pray to impress or teach others instead of genuinely pouring out their hearts before God. Jesus tells the disciples to be different. Pray in private. Prayer is essentially a conversation with God. We should shut out every distraction and focus on God. Does this resonate with you? It does with me. When you pray in public, do you have a desire to sound spiritual to those who are listening? Or do you come before a holy and gracious God in humility? The other issue with prayer is the danger of empty phrases in verse 7 and 8. Here Jesus is prohibiting mindless and mechanical repetition. Not the earnest repetition that flows from the imploring heart. Even Jesus repeated himself in prayer and told a parable to show his disciples that they should also pray and not give up. In Luke 18, the point is to avoid meaningless, repetitive prayers under the misconception that length will make prayers more effective. After all, our Father already knows our needs. Once again, our eternal, internal motivation is the central concern. How many times do you catch yourself saying the same phrases over and over again in prayer? Do you gravitate to rote prayers or simple words from the heart? Vain repetition and self-promotion shouldn't characterize the prayers of kingdom citizens. Which leads Jesus to introduce the Lord's Prayer and give instructions on, on how to pray. This is a model prayer informed by kingdom priorities. And we know that prayer helps align our priorities with those of the Father 
the Lord's Prayer as we know it, can be divided into two sections, prayer for the Father's glory and prayer for the disciples' needs. I'm sure many of you have it memorized, but let's read verse 9 to, to 10. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In this section, we learn about the God to whom we pray and his priorities. We learn here, here that he is our father, Abba in Aramaic, the word used by Jewish children for their earthly fathers. It conveys the authority and warmth and intimacy of a loving father's care. It is personal and approachable. Yet he is in heaven, and this reminds us of God's sovereign rule over all things and his transcendence. He created the universe and is in control of everything. He desires all praise and honor. We are to pray that his name would be made famous. It is a perfect balance of grace and power. That is the mystery and wonder of our God. Do we praise him for that? Do we err on one side or the other? Is he more personal to you or more transcendent? We also see that it is his kingdom and his agenda. We know nothing can stop his kingdom from expanding, and no one can thwart his plans. Daniel 4.35 says, All inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? He holds all authority. So when we pray, Your kingdom come, what exactly does that sound like? Is it praying for the earth to be more like heaven? Yes, it is praying that way. That the gospel be preached to all and embraced by all. That the bounds of the gospel church be enlarged. That people would submit to Christ's rule and obey his law. Do we want to see people come to know and worship God? Do we long for the kingdom to advance here on earth? Or are we more concerned with the kingdom of self? <clears throat> In this prayer, we also see that kingdom citizens submit to the will of God. In 1 Peter 4, verse 2, it says, Live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Do we pray for the Father's will to be done or for our will? What does this look like? It means pleading with God because he is our Father and cares for our needs, but submitting to his sovereign will knowing he is in control and his plans are for our good. Even Christ prayed and pleaded with the Father, but eventually said, Not my will, but yours be done. May that be our example. I know this is not easy. But let's pray for more grace to be able to trust him and submit to his will. <clears throat> the remaining three verses make up the second half of the Lord's Prayer. Here we see a prayer for the disciples' need. In verse 11 to 13, Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our needs as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is a prayer for provision, pardon, and protection. The idea of daily bread is foreign to our culture, isn't it? We live in an era that is unprecedented. We can store up food for months to years. We have cans, fridges, vacuum packs, and meal prepping. It took a pandemic for me to really appreciate the luxury we live in. Remember when the grocery stores were bare? We all panicked. However, this is a common occurrence for most of the world. In Bible times, manual laborers were paid on a daily basis. Can you imagine? They had just enough for that day. This prayer would have been very real for them. While well, we can take this prayer for granted, we falsely think that we're self-sufficient. 
as prayer is a reality check to realign, to realign our priorities. We are finite and we're made to be dependent on God day by day. Do you express your dependence on him in prayer? Praying for forgiveness refers to restoring the personal fellowship with God when fellowship has been hindered by sin. <clears throat> to clarify, it doesn't mean that believers need to ask daily for justification since believers are justified forever from the moment of initial saving faith. Kingdom citizens are to be people who confess our sins regularly to God and are ready to forgive others. We need to pray for God to help us in this because it is not easy. We see in Matthew 18 the temptation to withhold forgiveness from others. But someone, forgiven much, forgives much. Are we people marked by humble hearts of confession? Finally, Jesus also tells us to pray for protection. We aren't necessarily praying that bad things won't happen because we know that trials and hardships are inevitable. God permits evil to exist in the world and permits his people to be tested. In the book of James, we are encouraged to count it all joy when trials come because they strengthen us. But hardship and temptation make obedience more difficult, don't they? So we should pray that God will spare us from difficult circumstances that would tempt us to sin. As we advance the kingdom, we stand out as lights in the dark world, targets for the devil's attacks. We need to pray to be delivered from Satan so as not to yield to temptation. And here at the end, verses 14 to 15 describes the attitude in which we approach God in prayer. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This reinforces the deep importance of forgiveness if prayers are to be effective. Ladies, may our prayers be shaped by these longings. Let us live to make the, the king's name famous, longing for his kingdom to come. Let us long for the return of Jesus. But know that until that day comes, he will pardon our sin, he will provide our daily bread, and he will protect us from the evil one. Wow, so good. So if you remember, we are in the midst of three examples, giving, prayer, and for the final example, Jesus warns against fasting purposely to draw attention to oneself. Let's read verse 16 to 18 together. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Once again, Jesus tells the disciples to not be like the hypocrites. They were appearing as holy on the outside when their motivation was self-seeking. They made a big fuss about fasting, leaving their face unwashed, covered in ashes to show off, and somehow seem more spiritual. I don't imagine any of us will come to church covered in ashes, but the point is that we don't neglect our appearance in order to draw attention to ourselves. Rather, we should look normal so that God alone notices the fast, God's approval is the only approval we should seek. Fasting is a total abstinence from food for a certain time. It is an act to temper one's appetites. Citizens of the kingdom should be characterized by a hunger for God and not the world. So who do you think, what do you think, or who do you think about more through the day? The God of heaven or the God of your gut? 
Are you counting your blessings or are you counting your calories? As we close this, this first section, we see that kingdom citizens live to please God and have eternity in view. God's eyes are always on us and, have his, and his reward are for those who seek the kingdom and truth righteousness. Let's pray that our desires would shift from earthly reward to heavenly, that we would seek God over praise of man. Lord, lift our eyes to heaven and our heart to eternity. This brings us to the second section. In verse 19 to 24, Jesus addresses how kingdom citizens should relate to their possessions and warns against anxiety and materialism. Jesus exposes the dangers of laying up treasures here on earth and urges kingdom citizens to seek God over possessions. The first three examples encourage us to treasure things of eternal value. To treasure things of eternal value. Let's read verse 19 to 21. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, or where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, or where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This reminds me of when Ben and I went to Egypt. We visited the tombs of ancient pharaohs. One tomb had been reconstructed to picture what the tomb would have originally looked like. It was piled high with earthly possessions, literally from the ground to the ceiling, and mounds of gold. This is the picture I get when I read, lay up treasures on earth. Their plan was to take all their possessions into the afterlife, but they left it all behind. And most of the tombs are raided and pillaged anyways. The richest and most powerful men put whispers in history, and their precious treasures stolen or destroyed. Kingdom citizens are to be different. We are not to hoard or heap up possessions on earth, but instead we are, to be, or we are supposed to be open-handed and lay up treasures in heaven. Giving to others helps reorient ourselves that this stuff isn't ours to begin with. And we start investing things that are eternal because you know what is eternal? People's souls. Jen Wilkin puts it this way. It is not bad to be rich, but it's the question of whether you are a distribution center or a terminus. Jesus isn't beating around the bush here. He goes right to the core. He urges us to seek things of eternal value because that's where our heart will be. The heart refers to the center of one's being, what drives our emotions, reasons, and will. What you treasure will control your direction and values. Do you treasure ease and comfort? Do you treasure wealth? Do you treasure shoes? Our clauses don't lie. <laughs> do you treasure vacations? Especially right now. Or do you treasure God and his kingdom above all else? If someone doesn't have their daily bread, how do you expect them to get it? We are his hands and feet. Jesus says later in the book of Matthew, when you do this for the least of these, it's as if you do it for me. In many cases, our neighbors don't have daily bread because we have it and have not given it to them. 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19 says, As for the rich in this present age, that's us. Don't let yourself be fooled. We are a part of the richest 1% of the world. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who's ri who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, 
ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is true life. Are you investing in the kingdom? Let's look at the next illustration in verse 22 to 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? The eye is similar to the heart in Jewish literature. It reveals the quality of a person's inner life. A healthy eye, clear vision, suggests loyal devotion to God, while a bad eye, impaired vision, implies moral corruption. This one hits home. It pushes against the lie of it won't hurt to look. The eye is the access point to the whole body. Do you know why your desires are focused on earth and not on heaven? Because your eyes are trained on earthly things. You are consumed with the desire for what you are looking at. It can, and it can cause us to get greedy and stingy. A bad eye in Jewish literature literally refers to miserliness and selfishness. This pattern goes all the way back to Eve. Remember in Genesis 3? Eve saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She saw it, she liked it, she desired it, and she took it. This reminds me of a childhood song. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Materialism can cloud our vision. What are our eyes trained on? This is a call to self-examination. Do we have an eye that prefers God over possessions? Do we have an eye that can assess things to see that heaven is more precious than earth? The danger is real. If our eyes are trained on earthly things, Jesus says the result is a life full of moral and spiritual darkness. Are our eyes trained on the kingdom? All right, verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus bluntly drives this point home. He uses the example of two masters. Now, the word master isn't like a boss-employee relationship. It's better described as slave-owner relationship. The word serve indicates the work of a slave. Since the slave is the sole property of one master, he must give the master exclusive service. That's the way we are wired. We will be devoted to one or the other yet we think we can walk the fence. These masters make total demands on us. This makes me think of The Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. I picture the Marley brothers, remember them? They appear to Scrooge in a dream, and they are in chains because of their devotion to money. They choose to be slaves to wealth, and it is a cruel master. On the other hand, serving God leads to life, and we can put our hope in him. In Deuteronomy 6.5 says, to love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. A disciple's loyalties cannot be divided. We are either a slave to God or a slave to money. The Greek word for money is mamona, meaning wealth or property. Money is non-moral. The amount is not the determining factor. The poor can be covetous, while the rich can be generous. It's a matter of the heart. We are not permanent residents of this world. We are sojourners. When we truly admit this, everything falls into place. 
Disciples do not hold tightly to what they have in this world. Kingdom citizens should not be known as hoarders. Our view on possessions reveals our loyalties. Ouch. In what ways do your possessions compete for your loyalty? What are, your te- what are you tempted to treasure that you know you can't keep? Now, it's no surprise that after a discussion about belongings and money, we get into a discussion about anxiety. Jesus begins verse 25 with, therefore. And whenever we see this word, it's good to ask, what is it there for? What is the connection between what is written before and after? Here we see Jesus making a connection between treasure and anxiety. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. It is not life more than food, the body more than clothing. Now, is he saying don't care about these things? No, he's saying don't be anxious and highlight some main concerns, drink, clothing, body, and tomorrow, later in the passage. One glance at the TV or current news, and we see how on target Jesus was. Those things are still plaguing our society today. I found it interesting that the Greek word for worry literally means a distracted mind or double-minded. Dick France, a biblical scholar, describes worry to be over-concerned about something other than the kingdom of God. Worry is over-concerned that results from over-loving something, loving it more than God. By asking, is not life more than these things? Jesus is giving us a clue that we aren't seeking the right things. We are overloving or being overly concerned with this world. This world is not all there is. Life is more than these things. We have eternal matters to pursue. Verse 26 says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? Anyone here a bird watcher? If you were looking for a biblical support for your hobby, just look here. Jesus is literally calling us to bird watch. He's telling us to observe nature, to learn that he is the king of life and cares for his creation. Cardinals are my favorite. In the summer, we have a cardinal that perches on the tallest tree in our backyard and proclaims his presence quite loudly, actually. I'm pretty sure he doesn't suffer from hypertension, stress-related disease, or worry. He doesn't stay up all night wondering whether he will find food the next day. He is healthy and cared for by the Creator. And we are cared for by God as well, even more so because he is our Father. Just let that sink in. If that wasn't a good enough reminder, we may be further strengthened because we are of more value to God. We are made in his image. Do you hear him presenting his argument, trying to convince you and open your eyes to trust and have faith? God is so sovereign over the universe that even the feeding of the birds fall within his concern. He created a universe so vast, yet he knows your needs because you are his child. Plus, being anxious doesn't add anything to our lives. If anything, it makes it less enjoyable. And if that example wasn't good enough, Jesus draws our attention to the flowers. In verse 28, we see that God's providence and care are so rich that he clothes the grass with wildflowers that are neither productive nor enduring. Once again, 
Jesus is urging us to see our value and have faith and trust the Father's care. We see here that worry stems from a lack of faith, that God isn't who he says he is. We all need to examine our hearts to see if there is something we aren't believing about God's character. Now, I don't want to just brush, brush over the fact that anxiety is complex with physiological, historical, and environmental aspects. But the anxiety this passage is mainly focusing on is the day-to-day -day worries of life. Verse 31, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Gentiles or unbelievers may be stressed about material things, but we don't need to be overly concerned because our Father knows all our needs. We are to be different and rest in our Father's care. Now we can't forget verse 34. It says, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This verse always gets me. This verse sums it up. It reveals the underlying nature of most of our anxieties, the unknown things that are out of our control. Tomorrow is most certainly out of our control. And never have I ever felt that more when I was pregnant and do any day. Today's grace is sufficient only for today and should not be wasted on tomorrow. If tomorrow does bring new trouble, there will be new grace to meet it. And that's a quote from D.A. Carson. Now we get to the crux of the whole passage and possibly the whole chapter of Matthew. Verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all the things will be added to you. I've got another song for you. Every time I read this verse, I hum. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Do you know that one? Okay, I'm going to stop there. Leave you wanting more. <laughs> it all comes down to this. Don't be overly concerned. Don't love, don't treasure, don't serve the things of this world, but seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Jesus is bringing us back to the right priorities. What are we living for? What are we seeking? Worry is an opportunity. When we worry, we have the opportunity to see what kinds of things tend to get our attention more than God. He is calling us to reorient our lives. We need to keep first things first and second things second. And as we do that, we will bring, begin to be liberated from our worries. All right, ladies, let's bring it home. Ladies, may we fall out of love for the world and fall in love with the kingdom of heaven. May we be women who are marked by humility, generosity, and trust. May we treasure things of earthly value and trust in the Father's care. May we be able to sing with the hymn writer, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise, Thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure, thou art.
May God be our vision. May we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We love you, Lord.